You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast, a proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week I take you on a trip down memory lane, back 50 years in time, where we look at all the hockey news from 1970-71 season. This week, it marks 22 to 29, 1971. As most sports fans know right now, that madness that is a March basketball tournament is finally here. The brackets have been set and the teams are ready to hit the court. And DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy, is celebrating with their largest free college basketball survivor pool ever. How large? $1 million in total prizes is up for grabs. And if that's not enough, check this out. When you enter free DraftKings $1 million survivor pool, you could get a shot at winning 10 thousand dollars for every upset through the first two rounds of the tournament it's easy to play just pick one team a day and if they win you survive and advance to the next round last person standing is the big winner remember you can only pick a team once for the entire tournament so of course choose wisely DraftKings is a safe and secure app. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience completely securely. Get in on all this week's action. Download the DraftKings app now. Enter code THPN during sign up and enter the free $1 million survivor pool. Again, that is code THPN to enter into DraftKings free $1 million survivor pool. Eligibility restrictions and terms and conditions apply See DraftKings.com for details. And in addition to DraftKings, we are also sponsored by Newspapers.com where we get much of uh, the information for our posts here and the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Coburn who produce some of the finest craft beers in Canada. If you like what we do here in this podcast and every day on Twitter, uh, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's free podcast, but we have some great content available to subscribers only. Right now, our subscribers are getting episodes where we deal with how the media treated the death of Terry Sawchuk, and we found a lot of facts that I myself didn't know back 50 years ago. So in this week's show, we are in the penultimate week of the 1970-71 National Hockey League schedule. Final standings are, well, pretty much determined, although there was a few playoff matchups and uh, in the West uh, that really weren't quite 
firmed up. Everybody knew, although the clinchings hadn't actually take place mathematically, everybody pretty well knew who was going to play whom in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Now here's what we have in store in in this uh, episode. Uh, We're going to talk about the Detroit Red Wings who were not yet done sending people to Florida. We'll tell you who's going to Florida, when they're going, and who's paying for it. We'll talk about a game in Montreal that took place over the last week that would have been pretty unremarkable in any other circumstances, but thanks to the decision of one of the coaches involved in that game, it turned out to be pretty historic. And the Montreal Canadiens, back with them again, they honored an all-time great this week, and the celebration may have given us a clue as to what the future of this particular individual might be. So let's get right to the news and notes from the week. Got a lot to get through this time around. We'll have to jam it in. Uh, At any other time during the NHL season, the Saturday game between the Buffalo Sabres and the Montreal Canadiens at the Forum would not have been particularly notable. This is the Sabres' first season, of course, and the Canadiens are enjoying somewhat of a renaissance so far this year. The Habs firmly ensconced in third place in the Eastern Division, while the Sabres, of course, working on finishing fifth ahead of both Vancouver and Detroit in the East. That's hardly stuff that inspires any extra fan interest outside of maybe Buffalo and Montreal. But on Saturday evening of March 20th, a very nice goaltending matchup occurred that was indeed historic. And it wasn't even planned at the beginning. Well, it was by one guy. Uh, We'll let Pat Curran of the Montreal Gazette relate the story as he told it in that fine Montreal newspaper. Pat writes that most of the entertainment was strictly from Dullsville, but thanks to showman Punch Imlac, hockey history was made Saturday when Canadians beat the Sabres by a 5-2 count at the Forum. Dave and Ken Dryden became the first brothers ever to face each other as big league goaltenders. Now, Imlac tried to set up the brother act by starting 25-year-old Dave in the Buffalo goal, and he figured that Al McNeil, the Canadiens coach, would counter with Ken, the 23-year-old Montreal rookie. But the Habs coach stuck to his original game plan, and he uh, started Rogie Dashon, so Imlac switched to Joe Daly two minutes after the opening faceoff. So it looked at that point, as history would be denied on this occasion, but fate has a funny way of intervening into things. Defenseman Guy Lapointe and Bobby Sheehan kept the fans from from sitting on their hands completely. They gave the Canadians the early 2-0 lead. Then, Rogi Dashon stopped the shot by Eddie the Entertainer's shack, where it, quote, hurts the most, and you can get a mental picture of what that means. And when he couldn't continue... Ken Dryden took over the Montreal goal at 13.07 of the second period. Well, that's just what Punch Imlac was waiting for. He immediately summoned Joe Daly from the Buffalo goal to the bench and sent out Ken's brother Dave to replace him. I thought starting the brothers right off would be a hell of a deal for the crowd, said Punch, but McNeil didn't want to give the fans a run for their money until he absolutely had to. As things turned out, Dave, a New York and Chicago cast-off, blew the first shot, which was an 85-footer by Jacques Lemaire, which gave the Canadians a 3 nothing lead. 
How did Ken feel about his brother blowing a real easy shot from the blue line? Ken said, well, not very good, realizing his dad Murray was on hand from Toronto to watch the boys. Ken said, I knew Dave wanted to play well, and after all, we were ahead by a couple of goals. I might have felt different if it was a Stanley Cup game, as if Ken really thought he was going to play Stanley Cup games at this point in his career. While some Stad Montreal people like, quote, expert Ron Caron criticized Punch for circus tactics by uh, bringing Dave Dryden into the game, the fans enjoyed his moves in the nothing game. They appreciated Dave Dryden's post-game meeting when he skated to center ice, met his brother, and the two shook hands. I was just family proud my brother was at the other end of the rink, said Dave, who had hoped to play against Ken for the first time ever in their both organized hockey careers. Dave said, we never played against each other. There are six years difference in our ages, and I was always coaching them when we were kids. Dave, a graduate of the University of Waterloo, can take some credit then for Kenny's goaltending. Well, Dave says, no, I can't. I can't quite say that. He's done it all by himself, and it looks to me like Ken is going to be a good one. In case anyone cares and I don't, Canada will likely not participate in the 1972 Olympic Hockey Tournament. And this because of a statement from Bunny Ahern, who was, of course, the head honcho of the International Ice Hockey Federation. Uh, United Press International gave this release. John F. Bunny Ahern, president of the IIHF, said that Canada is definitely out of the 1972 Olympic tournament and will only be allowed to return to the World Championships, quote, when they accept our rules. Ahern is quoted as saying the only way we could get Canada in is if we threw out the rule book. Uh, nothing about professionals playing from communist countries or maybe leveling the playing field and allowing us to use professionals just the way the communist countries do. No, 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 no. The Olympics really isn't about the spirit of sport. It isn't about best on best. It's about putting a lot of money in the pockets of old white men. It was 50 years ago, and it remains that way today. I really didn't care if we win or not. It wasn't great hockey to watch as far as Canadians were concerned. And uh, in a couple years, we'll see what best on best really did look like. Wayne Cashman of the Boston Bruins had a narrow escape early in the week when he was involved in an auto accident in Revere, Massachusetts. Uh, Cashman suffered minor injuries uh, in the accident which occurred on the Revere Beach Parkway. The National Hockey League Bruins said that Cashman was released after hospital treatment for superficial cuts over the right eye and right knee, superficial corneal lacerations in the right eye, and a right hand injury for which x-rays proved negative. No traffic violations were involved in the mishap, although Cashman's car, and they don't tell us exactly what kind of vehicle it was, was a complete wreck after it collided with a cement truck. Cashman is the regular left wing on the Bruins line. The club said it was not known immediately whether he'd be ready to play in the Bruins' next game, which will be at Chicago. 
uh, throughout the show, well, as we come across when we were doing the research for this, we got a lot of predictions on what the upcoming playoffs would look like. Uh, the schedule's winding down. Like you said, next week we'll be reporting on the final week of the season. This week, Larry Regan, the general manager of the LA Kings, who are in absolutely no danger of participating in the postseason playoffs, says that the Maple Leafs, who are going to finish fourth, uh, they're going to play the second place New York Rangers. The Rangers haven't quite yet at this point clinched second, but they're going to this week. Uh, Reagan's uh, says the Maple Leafs will probably upset the Rangers in that playoff series. His reasoning is that the Leafs right now have superior goalkeeping, something, of course, they didn't have all season, but the acquisition of Bernie Perrant from the Flyers, Regan feels it gives him a better tandem between the pipes than the Rangers netminders, Eddie Jockerman and Gilles Vilmier. Now, what would a 50 years ago on Hockey Podcast weekly show be without some news from the Detroit Red Wings that wasn't good news? It's been an absolutely abysmal season for the Red Wings for a lot of reasons. We're not going to talk about the reasons right now, but we are going to talk about some bad news they got. And maybe this was their own fault too. Goalie Roy Edwards will not play for the last two weeks of the season. Now, Roy suffered a fractured skull in January, and he was out of, out of action for a couple of weeks, but he begged the doctors to return, and apparently they thought it was okay, so he got back in the lineup in record time, and maybe he was permitted to play just a bit too soon. Roy has not been his old self since returning from his injury, but a lot could be uh, simply because of the poor play of the team in front of the guy. But in recent days, he had been suffering from very severe headaches, especially during team flights. So the Red Wing doctors have said, that's it. We're taking over here. They've shut him down for the rest of the season. And in fact, they don't want him to do much physical exertion until he gets ready for training camp next fall. Let's hope Roy Edwards is going to be okay. Still with the Red Wings, and I don't really know whether this is good or bad news. It's just more Red Wing goofiness. The Red Wings must have liked what they saw from Gordie Howe after he went to Florida. They said they sent him to Florida. We know not, now know that that was Gordie's idea. He was just disgusted with everything going on around the team. Well, owner Bruce Norris of the Wings has decided to send the entire team south once the season ends on his dime. Everybody, team staff, players, they're all going to Florida for a nice vacation. If I were one of the Red Wings, though, I would uh, check to make sure that those tickets to Florida aren't just for one way. Last week, we told you about a young goalie by the name of Gilles Malosh making his professional debut with the Blackhawks as he was brought up to uh, replace the injured Jerry Desjardins. And young Gilles won both his games and was generally impressive for a goalie in his first year of pro just out of junior and having played all year in the amateur international hockey league. We wondered whether Jill would stick around. Of course, 50 years later, we know that Jill's is one of the finest NHL goalkeepers in a very long and productive NHL career. But this week, 50 years ago, 
Jules was back with the Flint Generals. The Blackhawks sent him down. And it's not because he didn't play well. This was simply some roster wrangling by the Blackhawks. And you may wonder why. Well, Ted DeMatta of the Chicago Tribune let us in on the little secret. He said, although it was sad to see Malash pack in his belongings after Sunday's game, he'll be back someday. The main reason that Joe Malash was returned to Flint was to preserve his amateur status. Remember, the International Hockey League was regarded in those days as more or less semi-pro, which meant a player could retain his amateur status. Had Jills played in three more NHL games, he officially would be turned professional and then he would have to be protected in the draft during the next NHL summer meetings. Back in 1970-71, a lot of us thought that the NHL players were the toughest athletes around and you viewed college athletes as, ah, you know, they're not uh, not as tough. And that's why most of them don't make the NHL. Not completely true. Dennis Erickson was a junior goalie for the University of Minnesota. And in the NCAA championship, which was taking place this at this time period, 50 years ago, he played more than two and a half periods in the championship game against Boston University with a broken kneecap. Dennis was injured at the eight-minute mark of the first period, but he remained in the game. He didn't want to leave. It was discovered Monday that the left kneecap had a horizontal fracture, and Dennis will have to wear a hip-to-heel cast for a month while the injury heals. Tough guy, Dennis Erickson. They say behind every successful man is an even more successful, smarter woman. I can attest to that. Well, North Star's Bill Goldsworthy has had quite an amazing season. And his wife knows why the season turned around. Now, Bill scored just six times by the January All-Star break, not that long ago. Now, as we get into the final two weeks of the season... Bill has 34 goals this year, and that's an amazing streak. June Goldsworthy, Bill's uh, spouse, says she knows exactly why Bill's scoring eye has been so sharp. June says, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but ever since Bill got hurt and started wearing that helmet, he's been going real good. That bump on the head must have helped him. Goldsworthy, who scored 36 goals last season, was struggling along on January 16th when he collided with teammate John Paul Parise in a game against Buffalo and suffered a concussion. Team doctor said he could return to playing as long as he wore a helmet, build on the protective headgear, and it's been a goal-scoring frenzy for Goldsworthy ever since. It's been sort of a uh, down season for the St. Louis Blues after being uh, the dominant team in the NHL's Western Division since 1967. And they've made quite a few changes. Uh, it's general manager and now general manager coach Scotty Bowman has been engineering a few and he's brought in a few new players. Well, Wally Cross of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch caught up with Scotty and he got his opinion on some of the players and most of the players that Scotty has brought in during this season. 
on Gary Unger, the mod young center who couldn't uh, get along with Red Wings GM Ned Harkness. Scotty says he shows me moves in the last couple of weeks that convince me he should be a 40-goal scorer every single year. He's had 10 goals and 11 assists since he joined us. And on Wayne Connolly, who came to the Blues with Unger, he says, I had Wayne in junior, and he's done everything for us I thought he would. He's really fitted in well with the Blues. Fran Huck is a smallish center who was acquired from Montreal uh, during the season as well. Scotty says, we gave up cash and a second round pick to uh, be named sometime at a later date when we select a Montreal. I don't think Fran is in shape yet. He hasn't played that much hockey the last few years, but he scored some big goals for us and we're very happy with his play. Carl Brewer was acquired in the deal uh, that uh, brought Connolly and Unger to the Blues as well. And Scotty says, we have to give Detroit two minor leaguers for him next season, but that has to make him a great bargain. He's not in shape yet either, but he's really going to help us. We've got him playing with John Arbor on defense right now. And Scotty added that they're completely convinced that Brewer is going to be playing for the St. Louis Blues again next season as well. And one other mid-season addition by the Blues was not acquired by trade or by sale or waivers. It's Al Arbor, who was coaching the Blues, wasn't really completely happy coaching and he begged Scotty Bowman to let him go back on the ice and play defense. Scotty, after weeks of Al haranguing him to let him play, he didn't want to be a playing coach, finally agreed to go back behind the bench and Al took up his spot on the St. Louis blue line and Scotty says... Al will probably be coaching us again next year, but he's still been one of the best defensemen in the business. And his year is not going to get tired late in the playoffs because he's had most of the year to rest behind the bench. We're going to talk about one game that took place this week, and that was when the Rangers officially clinched second place in the Eastern Division. That was on Tuesday night when they hammered the Buffalo Sabres 7-2 at Madison Square Garden, and the great Gerald Eskenazi, who provides so much of, of the reporting in our Patreon series uh, on Terry Sawchuk, uh, he has the game report in the New York Times. Gerald writes, The remembrance of nightmares in which their team would nosedive just when it was ready to grab the brass ring turned into beautiful thoughts for Ranger fans Tuesday night at Madison Square Garden. With a 7-2 victory over the Buffalo Sabres, the New Yorkers guaranteed themselves a second-place finish, and that's for only the third time since 1942 what no champagne said eddie jackman afterward i guess you get nothing for finishing second and maybe eddie has a point there what the rangers did get out of this win was some relief going into the game they had lost three straight and though they insisted they weren't worried during that stretch they must have recalled other seasons when new york teams floundered in the games leading up to playoff time. Perhaps more important than clinching second in the National Hockey League's East Division, the Rangers' top playoff line, anchored by Jean Rattel, finally flashed its old form. Rattel and Rod Gilbert 
assisted on third period scores by Vic Hadfield. Throughout the game, the trio moved the disc near Dave Dryden, the Sabres goalie, whose brother Ken had halted the New Yorkers in their game with Montreal last Sunday. And the Pete Stemkowski line, meanwhile, ha- hampered Gilbert Perrault so much that the smooth-striding rookie failed to unleash a shot on goal until the third period. Repeatedly, he was halted at the Ranger blue line and was unable to stick handle through the tight checking. The Sabres, who messed up their scoring chances by passing too much and too erratically, are the last expansion club the Rangers will face this season. If the Rangers hadn't won, they could have been in trouble as far as second place is concerned because a home-and-home series against the Boston Bruins is next on their schedule and there's no guarantees there for sure. With this win, the Rangers totaled over 100 points in a season for the first time in their history. Their 50 shots on goal were also a season high this year. While the Rangers were celebrating this historic win, they did get a touch of bad news in this game. Dave Ballone had to be removed when he was knocked uh, almost completely unconscious when he wrapped his head into the boards during the second period. Team doctors said they suspect that Dave may have a concussion and they're going to ask him to rest for three days just to make sure he's okay. Montreal Canadiens honored Jean Beliveau at the Forum on Wednesday night in their game against the Philadelphia Flyers. The celebration that took place really looked more like the type of thing you do when you honor a guy who recently retired. So maybe Montreal management knows something that uh, the rest of us fans don't. Could this be the final year for Big Jean? Most people figure that Beliveau has at least one good year left. But it could be that Jean has advised management that he's hanging up his skates at the end of this year. And if so, this would be probably a good time to honor the Montreal great. It would take too long to get into all the details of this celebration. And what we're going to do is in a special uh, Patreon edition of our podcast for our subscribers, we're going to devote an entire episode to how this... uh, night was treated by the Canadians with a bunch of tributes from different people who spoke about uh, Jean during uh, during the uh, celebrations. One note on the celebrations, while everyone was at this uh, uh, night for Jean Beliveau at the Forum, burglars broke into the Beliveau home, uh, got into the safe, and they took some valuables. Uh, as the story was written, exactly what had been taken was left unclear. But a lot of the trophies that John had received were not touched by the burglars, interestingly. Here's another from the prediction department, and this is Jim Coleman, who writes for the Toronto Telegram and is syndicated Uh, right across Canada, his column, which appears several times a week. Coleman says folks shouldn't anoint the Boston Bruins as this year's Stanley Cups just yet. Jim writes, don't mortgage your house and lot to bet on the Bruins in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Heed a warning from Duke Scroggins, the long shot kid, and I really don't know if Duke Scroggins ever existed, Jim had a way of uh, uh, taking the truth in in strange places, shall we say. Now, who is uh, Duke Scroggins? Well, 
He is uh, a person who develops his considerable energies to smoking out long-priced winners on North American racetracks. However, while warming up for Thursday's opening of the Canadian Thoroughbred season at Toronto's Greenwood Park, he paused to put his whammy on the luckless Bruins. I never give you no bum steers, said Mr. Scroggins, ignoring my invitation to get lost as he hovered over my desk and nonchalantly flicked his cigar ashes into my silent typewriter. I'm telling you that Boston is going to get licked in the playoffs. You can put that in your paper and make yourself a hero with your readers. Jim writes, I gazed up at Mr. Scroggins thoughtfully. Indeed, he has given me very few bum steers in the course of our lengthy, if tenuous, friendship. Once he talked me into betting on one of my own horses after my trainer had assured me that the gallant steed had no chance of winning. My horse won and paid 56.10 on a $2 bet. Thanks to Mr. Scroggins, I enjoyed a period of temporary prosperity. Jim said, I've known you for many years, Longshot, but this is the first time I've heard you come up with a really ridiculous prediction. Have you been smoking pot or simply have you lost all your marbles? Without rancor, Scroggins simply replied, you know darn well I'm strictly a figures man. I work from the past performance charts. The book on the Bruins don't look so good. They were lucky last year. I don't think that they would have beaten Montreal Canadiens, but Detroit and New York ganged up on Canadiens and squeezed them into fifth place. Things would have been different last year if Montreal had reached the playoffs. Okay, Coleman snorted, but that's history now. We're talking about April 1971. Scoggins agreed, saying, you said the key word, history. If you look up the history of the Boston Bruins, you'll understand why I'm betting on the Bruins that they're going to fall on their cans in these playoffs. 41 years have passed since the Bruins had a hockey season like this one. They made a shambles of the league in 29-30, but they blew the Duke in the Stanley Cup playoffs that year. Coleman writes, I glared at my uninvited visitor. He dropped another clod of ash into my typewriter. Go ahead, look it up, long shot challenge. The Bruins were even better in 1930 than they are today. They finished the season 26 points ahead of the nearest rival, Montreal Maroons. Boston players monopolized the scoring race just as they're doing today. But when the chips were down, they folded. Jim writes, long shot glanced at the blank page of my typewriter. Get busy writing, he said. I'm giving you a chance to make your readers believe that you're a genius. I never give you no bum steers. And with those words, he sauntered out of my office. Here's a bit of an interesting story out of the NHL offices where Clarence Campbell says the league will begin giving players aptitude tests in September. The most pertinent question fans were asking is why. Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail had the story. National Hockey League players will be tested to determine their aptitudes for other careers according to league president Clarence Campbell after announcing a new educational program. The tests will be conducted at all team training camps in October to determine if, for example, Jim McKenney really belongs in the theater. 
Jim has taken instruction in acting, but the NHL-coordinated tests may indicate that McKenney belongs in the banking business. Andre Moose DuPont, he could be pointed towards professional wrestling, and Billy Spear, the barber, could be advised to move into hairstyling. The possibilities here really are endless. Now, it sounds like the NHL is maybe trying to get rid of players. Not true at all. What they're trying to do is advise players so that they can have a productive post-playing career. Everyone knows NHL players do not get rich playing for National Hockey League teams. Well, actually, they do better than the average Joe, but compared to what they're going to be making in 50 years... It's a paltry sum. So here's what the league is actually thinking of. Any player who's interested in exploring his aptitude for a post-hockey career will be able to take an aptitude test. He can then turn to University of Ottawa where summer courses will help him develop those capabilities for which he displays the most aptitude. Here's how important Clarence Campbell thinks this initiative is. He said, I rate this next to our pension plan and making hockey an attractive career. While we're speaking on reports from uh, Dan Proudfoot, here's another one uh, that he, the report he filed this week. Uh, he was discussing the plight of the Oakland Seals and he got hold of uh, Seals general manager, coach Fred Glover, and asked him, how the uh, California Golden Seals could have ever traded away their first round pick in this year's draft as well as some other drafts. And of course, that pick is going to give the Montreal Canadiens the privilege of selecting highly touted junior Guy Lafleur. Freddie Glover, whom we seem to quote a lot these days because he's got a lot to say about the awful team he coaches and manages, had another of his classic replies to Proudfoot and we have to qualify this. Fred had nothing to do with the draft pick that had been traded. In a telephone interview with Proudfoot, uh, Glover says, There's no use crying over spilt milk. I've been asked to clarify the whole matter of who we got for what and how we gave up our draft choices. But frankly, it's next to impossible to explain. Because these deals were made by different people before I came into the picture, the only way I can try to figure things out is by going into all the old correspondence. But what's the use? The more of the correspondence I read, the angrier I get. Even the NHL headquarters lacks complete details of the trades involving the draft choices because until last June, teams were allowed just to list future considerations when draft picks were, were, were traded. And so no one really knew what those future considerations were. For example, neither Glover nor the NHL have a record to show how Montreal acquired the Oakland pick, which will give Lafleur to the Canadians. Glover knows that Ernie Hickey and Dennis Hextall were directed to Oakland by Montreal, but draft choices also were involved with Oakland swapping a first choice for a 1970 draft pick the year before. Another team's executive suggested Oakland gave their 71 choice to the Canadians for Chris Odlifson, which in short means the trade was Guy Lafleur for somebody named Chris, Chris Odlifson. Who knows if that's true, said Glover. Anyway, Lafleur still has to prove he can play in the NHL. 
Fred's been coaching and managing this year. He hasn't gone on many scouting trips, and he probably hasn't seen Lafleur play yet. Now, like their dealings with the Minnesota North Stars uh, since expansion took place in 1967, there have been so many transactions between the Habs and the Seals, it's really tough to actually determine who swapped what for whom. I think a trip to the NHL registry might give us some insight, and it would be interesting, to say the least, to look at those records from back then. I actually made a trip to the Central Registry a few years ago while researching a project on the 1967 expansion. And they do have uh, all the transactions there, but I have to tell you, it really wasn't uh, as nicely put together as you would uh, hope it would be. I was informed that the entire system was going to be computerized, and I'm going to make a trip back there at some point to have a look and see how easy it might be to find the uh, information on these old draft picks and see exactly what this was. Here's a note out of Toronto this week. Jacques Plante says he's going to play one more year for the Maple Leafs. Jacques says, I have not signed yet, but that's not going to be any problem. I have been most happy in Toronto. The Leafs have an excellent organization and they've treated me well. They've assured me that there is a place for me in their organization when I finally retire, and that's good because I want to stay in hockey. I would like to become Coach John McClellan's assistant and troubleshooter. Jock said they say the Leafs did their about face when Plan arrived, and this is not true. The potential always was there. I joined the team at the right time. I think we mentioned last week, I know we did in the Twitter feed this week, that Gene Knesiewicz had resigned as president of the Western Hockey League. Now, the Western Hockey League was a professional league on the West Coast during the 50s and 60s. And at one point, they were going to... uh, take on the NHL as a rival second league and there was talk in those days in the early 60s that they had a large contract prepared to woo Bobby Hull from the Chicago Blackhawks. They felt bringing in Hull would be the way for a rival league to actually succeed against the NHL. Of course, The NHL got wind of this and they beat the uh, WHL to the punch by expanding into the uh, Bay Area of San Francisco and Los Angeles and California. And those were the two jewel franchises of the WHL at that time. A couple of years ago, the league, uh, after longtime president Al Leader left, hired 27-year-old Gene Knesiewicz, a former minor pro player, to be the president of the league. Knesiewicz, a very, very bright young guy, uh, gave the the owners of the league a plan to bring the, the minor league to prominence to be the best minor league around the country and maybe even rival the NHL. There were discussions of that, we understand. But recently, as recently as last week, Knisiewicz, now 29, decided to resign the presidency of the WHL. Knisiewicz told the owners he's going back into the education field. He had, before he took on this job, been an associate dean at Harvard University. Well, the word comes out this week that the league has found a replacement for Gene Knisiewicz. Only one problem, the guy they want is currently employed as the Vancouver Canucks. 
There are suggestions that Hal Lako, the Canucks coach, will step down at the end of this season and take over as president of the WHL. Now, Lako is a longtime coach and general manager in that league, and it's thought that he still has a special place in his heart for the WHL, and they would like him to run the league. Hal says this is a lot of bunk. I'm not leaving Vancouver, at least not voluntarily. One more story we wanted to talk about this week involves some of the other players other than Guy Lafleur who are going to be drafted this spring. Frank Orr, the Toronto Star, took a look at that. He uh, first talked to Steve Vickers of the Toronto Marlboros, and Steve Vickers uh, really doesn't want to be drafted by one of the top NHL teams. Now, Vickers is quite aware that Guy Lafleur is going to Montreal, and Steve doesn't think that going to a top team is necessarily a good thing for a guy like him who's not going to be in the top three picks. Steve knows he's first-round caliber, but uh, he's not going to be, as he said, uh, right up at the top. Now, the scouts think uh, the Marlboro right winger, he's a big guy, six foot one, 190 pounds, is a prototypical professional-style winger. And what that means is he plays his position well, he digs hard in the corners, he's a, a real solid scorer, and he's got good size. In addition, Vickers displays no dislike for physical contact. He likes to get his nose dirty, and that's something that the scouts are very conscious of these days. Steve told Frank Orr, I certainly don't want to be drafted by Boston or any of the other clubs at the top of the NHL. Steve said he wants to go to a team in which he has a chance of making right away in his first pro season. Uh, Steve went on to say that with one of the pack teams, especially Boston, you could spend five years in the minors without ever having a shot at an NHL job. Frank reveals a little uh, a little bit else about how junior hockey worked with players in those days. Steve uh, Vickers typifies the new breed of hockey player in 1970s. He's bright, well-rounded, cognizant of the fact that there's more to life than just chasing a puck around. Uh, Steve has maintained a solid standing in year one of an economics-based general arts course at Scarborough College. Now, should Steve postpone a, pro a professional career, the Toronto Marlboros are committed to paying his tuition for two additional years of college so he can acquire his degree. Steve seems to be a pretty bright young man, maybe more so than other junior players coming out. He told Frank Orr, several players have had their summer school expenses written into their first professional contracts. Steve says he's going to try for that arrangement, which would then free the Marlboros from their obligation to pay for his education. Uh, a nice thought. Steve said he hasn't decided if he's going to have a lawyer or anyone else represent him in negotiations with whatever team happens to draft him. He went on to say that if a player is selected in the first or second in the draft right up at the top, then he should have someone there to deal for him. Steve says, I won't be that high, but before I talk contract, I'm going to get professional advice. So that is this week's show, everyone. Second last week of the 1970-71 season. Lots going on, and what did we learn? Well, we found out that the Red Wings weren't done sending folks to Florida, and now they're going to actually send the entire team there once the schedule is over. 
Bruce Norris is going to pay the way and the Red Wings are going to lounge on a beach while the other teams are chasing the Stanley Cup. Not a bad consolation prize, don't you think? We learned that Punch Himlock isn't all uh, doom and gloom to players and that he has a, a human side as he took a very unremarkable game in Montreal and made it historic by arranging for Dave Dryden and Ken Dryden to face each other as goaltenders in an NHL game the first time that that has ever happened. And we learned this week that the Canadians honor John Beliveau for his wonderful career and his great community work as well. And uh, we got some clues as to the man's future. It looks like John might have let somebody know that he's planning on hanging up his skates. So next week, we're in the final week of the 1970-71 season, and here are some of the stories we're going to cover. Well, of course, number one, we're going to nail down the final standings as the teams uh, wind down their schedules, and eight of the teams will be preparing for the playoffs. We're going to find out that when the Canucks slaughter the Seals in Vancouver in one game next week, it's going to solidify something that most of us knew was going to happen once and for all. And for the first time that anyone can remember, an opposing player will be given a night at Maple Leaf Gardens and we'll have all the details on that as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy now produces podcasts as well. And if you want to put something together, get hold of me and I will hook you up with Andy. Andy's a true media professional and uh, he does a wonderful job with these things. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction and exit music. And if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, don't miss it. Other original original music and, and sound effects are produced by Andy Cole as well in the podcast. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star and the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the very fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on the Hockey Podcast Network. We're on Twitter every day at, at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page of 50 Years Ago on Hockey. And we have a WordPress site as well at Hockey50YearsAgo.com. You can get us wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. We're winding down this season. The Stanley Cup playoffs are going to be amazing this year. No spoilers given at this point. But on that note... I'll say we will see you next time. When the ice